Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Tonight we're going to do an introduction to the book of Job. Two verses that are not in the book of Job that I'd like you to keep in mind throughout this whole study. And this, this may take us a couple years to get through. But uh, for those of you who've read the Bible through a few times, um, you've probably stopped in the book of Job and hung, there, hung out there for a little while because uh, you've probably heard a lot about it and you wanted to see what all this fuss was about with this, this guy named Job. Two verses, one in Romans chapter 8, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Keep that tucked in the back of your mind. Romans 8, 28. And Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Those two verses, I think, are instrumental that you, you kind of weave this book through those verses as we go through it, as we study it. We're going to watch a quick video. And kind of the theme going through this whole book is not why should we suffer, but how. How should we suffer? The book of Job, it's a profound and very unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. The story is set in a very obscure land that's far away from Israel, Uz. The main character, Job, he's not even an Israelite. And the author, who's anonymous, doesn't even set the story in any clear period of ancient history. This all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and on the questions raised by his experience of suffering. The book of Job has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative prologue and then an epilogue. And then the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry, representing conversations between Job and four dialogue partners called the Friends. These conversations are then concluded by a series of poetic speeches given by God to Job. Let's dive in and we'll just see how it works together. The prologue introduces us to Job and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honors God. He's a super good guy. And then all of a sudden, we're transported into the heavenly realms, and God is holding court with his staff team. It's a very common image in the Old Testament describing how God runs the world. And among the heavenly beings is a figure called the Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching a court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer. Then we'll see how righteous he actually is. And then God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, it's at this point in the story that most of us go, what? Why did God do that? And then we assume that this book is going to answer that question, why God allows good people to suffer. But as you read on, the book 
doesn't answer that question. Nothing in the book ever answers that question. The prologue is setting up the real questions this book is trying to get at. Questions about God's justice and whether God operates the universe according to the strict principle of justice. And the response to those questions comes as you read through to the end of the book, not at the beginning. The ultimate reason for Job's suffering is simply never revealed. So the prologue concludes with a suffering and bewildered Job who's rebuked by his wife and he's approached by three friends who are going to try and provide wisdom and counsel. Their names are Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They're all non-Israelites like Job. And they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and the human condition. And this moves us into the main part of the book. First, Job speaks. And this is how the section of the book works. First, Job is going to speak, and then they'll follow a response from a friend. Then Job will respond to that friend. Then another friend will respond to Job's response, and so on, back and forth, for three cycles. And this whole debate is focused on three questions. Is God truly just in character? And does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And if so, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? As we're going to see, Job and the friends, they're working from a huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principle of justice. So if you're a wise, good person and you honor God, good things will happen to you. God will reward you. But if you're evil and stupid and do sinful things... Bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. Now, Job's constant argument throughout his speeches is this. First of all, that he's innocent. And so the implication of that is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Now, we know from the prologue, both of these things are true. Remember, God himself said, Job is righteous and blameless. And so Job concludes his argument by accusing God. God either doesn't run the world according to justice or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. The friends, on the other hand, they beg to differ. Their argument is that God is just. The implication being that God always runs the world according to justice in this way. And so they conclude by accusing not God, but Job. Job must have done something really, really bad for God to punish him like this. They even start making up possible sins that Job must have committed. Job protests to all of this. In fact, he gets so fed up with the friends that he eventually just gives up on them. He takes up his case directly with God. Now, something to be aware of is that Job, he's on an emotional roller coaster in these poems. He used to think that God is just, but now he can't reconcile that with his suffering. And so in some outbursts, Job, he'll accuse God of being a bully. Once he even declares that God has orchestrated all the injustice in the world. But the moment he utters that thought, he's terrified of it because he wants to hope and believe that God is truly just. Job is all over the place in this section. And so he makes one last statement of his innocence, and then he demands that God show up personally to explain himself. Now, it's at this point that a surprise friend shows up, Elihu the Buzite. Now, he's not an Israelite, but he does have a Hebrew name. And Elihu, he has the same assumption as Job and the friends. He argues that God is just and that that implies that God always operates the universe according to justice. But then Elihu draws a more sophisticated conclusion about why good people suffer. It may not be punishment for sin in the past. God might inflict suffering as a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. Or God might use pain and suffering to build character or to teach people valuable lessons. Elihu doesn't claim to know why Job is suffering, but one thing he is certain of, Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. 
Job doesn't even respond to Elihu, and the dialogues come to a close. It's like the wisdom of the ancients has been spent, and the mystery remains. And then, all of a sudden, God shows up in a whirlwind, and he responds to Job personally. He first responds to Job's accusation that he's unjust and incompetent at running the universe. So God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe, and he starts asking him all these questions about the order and origins of the cosmos. Was Job ever around when God architected the earth or organized the constellations? Has Job ever commanded the sunrise or controlled the weather? God has his eyes on all of these cosmic details that Job has never even conceived of. Then God starts going into detail, describing the grazing habits of mountain goats and how deer give birth or the feeding pattern of lions and wild donkeys. What's the point of all this? Remember the assumption of Job and his friends about what it looks like for God to run the world according to justice. Underneath that assumption is a deeper one, that Job and his friends have a wide enough perspective on life to make such a claim about how God ought to run the world. And God's response with this virtual tour, it deconstructs all of these assumptions. It first of all shows that the universe is a vast, complex place, and that God has his eyes on all of it, every detail. Job, on the other hand, has only the small horizon of his life experience to draw from. His view of the world is very limited. And so what looks like divine injustice, from Job's point of view, needs to be seen in an infinitely larger context. Job is simply not in a position to make such a huge accusation about God. After the virtual tour, God asks Job if he would like to micromanage the world for a day, according to the strict principle of justice that Job and his friends assume, punishing every evil deed of every person at every moment with precise retribution. The fact is that carrying out justice in a world like ours, it's extremely complex. It's never black and white like Job and the friends seem to think, which leads to God's last point. He starts describing these two fantastic creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, which some people think are poetic depictions of a hippo and a crocodile. But more likely, they refer to well-known creatures from ancient Near Eastern mythology that are used elsewhere in the Bible as symbols of the disorder and danger that exist in God's good world. These creatures, they're not evil. God's actually quite proud of them, but they're not safe either. The point is that God's world is amazing and very good, but it's not perfect or always safe. God's world has order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, just like these two fantastic creatures. And so we come back to the big question of Job's suffering. Why is there suffering in God's world? Whether it's from earthquakes or wild animals or from other humans, God doesn't explain why. What he says is that we live in an extremely complex, amazing world that at this stage, at least, is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. Job challenged God's justice. God responds that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about our universe to make such a claim. Job demanded a full explanation from God. And what God asked Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. And so Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God and he acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. Then all of a sudden, the book concludes with a short epilogue. First, God says that the friends were wrong, that their ideas about God's justice were just too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. 
And then God says that Job has spoken rightly about him. Now, this is surprising because it can't apply to everything Job said. I mean, we know Job drew hasty and wrong conclusions, but God still approves of Job's wrestling, how Job came honestly before God with all of his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God says that's the right way to process through all of this, through the struggle of prayer. The book concludes with Job having his health, his family, his wealth, all restored, not as a reward for good behavior, but simply as a generous gift from God. And that's the end of the book. So the book of Job, it doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out the reasons for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like the friends, or like Job, accuse God, but based on limited evidence. And so the book is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God, and to trust that God actually cares and that he knows what he's doing. And that's what the book of Job is all about. But it'll be an interesting journey to get there. Um, a couple of things that we can take away from that, from that video, I think, as we approach this book and also approach just life as, as believers, um, and that is that uh, to trust God when we don't understand things. And we're going we're gonna to see that throughout this book, and we've all experienced that. We've all experienced things that we don't get, we don't understand. We've all had uh, tragedies uh, in our lives. And there, there were times where we may have even questioned God in those things. So remember that those verses, Romans 8.28 and Isaiah 55.9. It'll kind of give us a little bit of uh, balance to the book as we go through it. So, a couple of introductory notes before we dig into kind of the, uh, as we break it down and um, an outline of the book. Uh, we don't really know with certainty who the author of this book is. There's a couple of books in the Bible that it's really not clear who it is. Some claim that Job himself wrote it. Um, it certainly is an intimate enough picture of the, the uh, dialogue between Job and his so-called friends, and you'll see why I say so-called as we get through this, uh, the book, um, the intimacy of the relationship that he has with, with God and some of the things that he went through in his struggles. So that's a possibility. Um, some claim that Moses may have written the book. All we know is that uh, we don't know for sure who wrote it, and it certainly is one of the oldest, if not the oldest book in the Bible, as far as when it was written. Uh, we see a few things historically that give us a picture of the timing of it, although we can't be 100% sure. So as we go through, we'll bring up those things as they come about. So it really doesn't make that much of a difference who wrote it, but when we do an intro to a book, we always like to know uh, where, where the author might be coming from, his perspective, but we don't really know that. Um, we do know that Scripture explains Scripture. We do know that Scripture confirms Scripture. And we do know that 
Job and some of the um, quotes out of this book were mentioned in the New Testament or even in other parts of the Old Testament. So in Ezekiel 14, 14, it says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. So we see a reference to Job in Ezekiel, which is uh, several hundreds of years after that. The Apostle Paul mentions Job two two verses that he references. The first one in 1 Corinthians 3.19. Paul says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written. Whenever you see it is written in the New Testament, most of the time you can you can guarantee that that means that it is written means that it was in the Old Testament. It is written. So one of the New Testament writers is making a reference to an Old Testament quote or verse. So Paul writes, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, which is from Job 5.13. So we see Paul references Job. And then in Romans 11.35, Paul again quotes a verse from Job, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. So that's Romans um, 11.35, and that's from Job 41.11. So direct quotes out of this book of Job. So we can see that it was inspired. We can see that God wanted it to be part of the scriptures, and we can see that, um, that Paul made reference to it at least twice. Again, we said that there was no definitive date as to the writing of this, but um, there is a mention of the flood in the book of Job in 22.16. It mentions the flood. There's no mention of the law of Moses uh, throughout this book, so we tend to put the writing somewhere before the giving of the law. Um, although Job sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of his, of his family. So we see that he did something similar to what the, the ancient patriarchs did, Abraham, before the giving of the law, before the sacrifices were actually put into effect. We see that Job um, did that. He sacrificed to the Lord. Um, that's Job 1.5, if you want to take a note on that. So, we, you know, the, again, the overview of the book. We've heard the expression uh, that you have the patience of Job. You know, in our vernacular, we use that, we attribute that to someone who maybe has withstood, um, you know, a really difficult, trying experience in their life. But because we get an intimate view inside Job's suffering and how he responds to that suffering, we may actually come to the conclusion as we go through this book that Job wasn't very patient at all because of how he responds and reacts at times throughout this book. We we may say, as James seems to indicate in James 5.11, that he had perseverance 
but not patience. Patience we, we might define as the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Now, we see that Job sometimes does get angry, sometimes does get upset, sometimes actually loses his faith, doubts God, questions God. So perseverance uh, might be defined as persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay. And endurance, which is, again, something what, more like what James mentions about Job, is the fact or power of enduring an unpleasant or difficult process or situation without giving way. So that's more like what we see. We see the perseverance of Job. And that's, what, that's really what James says in James 5.11. It says, Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So James refers to the end. We saw the end. We, we got a glimpse of the end of the story where, where God restores um, back to Job all that he had lost and then some. James tells us that Job had perseverance, had determination, had endurance in the face of real personal tragedy. But like most of us, when disaster comes into our life, especially when it comes in through no fault of our own, we question, don't we? We doubt sometimes. We might even get angry with God. We ask why. And we may wonder if we might have done anything to deserve the position we find ourselves in. But it's comforting to see what James refers to here as the end intended by the Lord. The end intended by the Lord. Again, Romans 8.28, he works all things together for good to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. The end intended by the Lord is something we always have to keep in mind. And we don't see the end until, until we're in it. But God does. Remember, God sees the end from the beginning. He knows all things. He knows, he knows how everything is going to work out, even though we don't. And then, to trust. To trust in the Lord. Why? Because he has our best interest at heart. This is a very, this is a very common theme we see throughout all of Scripture. We see the character of God wanting the best for his people. Sometimes we see that played out in ways that we wouldn't necessarily point out as the best. But his intentions are always good. In Jeremiah 29, 11, you know this verse, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's what God wants for each and every one of us. So again, some things to keep tucked in the back of your mind as we journey through this book. And, and sometimes we may start to uh, relate to how Job is seeing his situation and sometimes even how his friends are counseling him through this. But something to keep in, in tucked in the back of your mind. God's thoughts toward us are 
loving, and benevolent. Nevertheless, we experience pain, we experience suffering. And the question is not if, but when, right? Because we know it's going to come. Our response is the one thing that we want to get right. Do we trust him in the midst of trials? Do we believe his promises? Or do we struggle with those things? And to struggle is not a sin. It's part of the human condition. But we always want to go back to what we know. That his promises is never to leave us or forsake us. But he also promises us troubles in this world. We can relate to Job in a lot of different ways. You know, Jesus says in John 16, These things I have spoken to you that in me, in Jesus, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus here offers us peace but promises us trials. He makes available to us his peace, but he guarantees that we're going to have tribulation in this world. And if you're a believer and someone told you that you will have a trouble-free life when you put your faith and trust in Christ, then they were lying to you. And you know that. That's not true. It's not realistic. But in the end... Again, like we see at the end of this book, the end intended by God, in the end, Jesus is going to make all things right. And that's where we have our hope and our future. You may wonder if you have to go through intense suffering in your life to really grasp this book, to understand this book, to fully understand the lessons that are taught in this book. Well, whether you have to or not, you probably all will go through some intense suffering at some point in your life. You will understand what Job is going through. And I think, and it was mentioned here in the video that we saw, we don't really get the answer as to why, but we do get a picture as to how. How are we to suffer, how are we to respond and walk in a world that's filled with trials and suffering? That's, that's the, really the question for us as believers. So I'm going to quickly go through um, some of the breakdowns of this book, how it's divided, And I'm using something here that was adapted from uh, Warren Wearsby's book um, on the book of Job, his commentary on this. So we get to see right off the bat Job's distress right in the beginning of the book. We also get to see a picture of his integrity as well as the great wealth that he had at that time, and the material things that he had, as well as his family and the relationships that he had. So we get a really good picture as to who Job was. But we also see his suffering, and we also see his questioning of God very early on. 
And then as it was shown in the video, the brunt of this book really is about Job's defense of what happened to him, his, his trying to understand why, and his questioning of God in all of this. And we get to see his friends come and try to give him counsel. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar come in, and they try to give counsel to Job. And Job responds back. So there's this dialogue back and forth between his friends. And you know, when you're going through something, it's really good to have friends. It's really good not to go through these things alone. And you'll notice something very interesting with the friends that Job had and how they attempted to help him for the first part of their counsel, they didn't say a word. And that was probably the best counsel Job got from them the whole time. As soon as they opened their mouths, everything kind of went south. And everything was back and forth between them. So we, we kind of have to understand that sometimes uh, friends are good. We don't want to go through things alone. But we also have to um, have discernment with the counsel that we, we receive from people. So again, we start to see this, this second round of questioning and dialogue between Job and his friends. And then we see, as it was stated before, the third round. And we're already up to chapter 37 in the book. There's only 42 chapters. So again, the main part of this book is the dialogue between Job and his friends, and we're going to get in-depth into exactly what that looks like. And then, as he mentioned in the video, this young man comes on the scene, another friend, not one of the original three, but young Elihu. And he starts to turn things around a little bit. He starts to contradict the previous counsel that Job was getting. And then he starts to contradict Job himself and his thoughts about God, his thoughts about why he's undergoing this suffering. And then he starts to proclaim God's character. And this is very interesting because I'll give you one verse here in Job 32. Verse 6, it says, So Elihu, son of Barachel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. Now, we, we know that young people sometimes are timid in, uh, in how they may approach somebody or give counsel to somebody. Maybe they feel like they don't have enough years of experience or wisdom um, in this world to give good advice. But, and, and that was his, basically where he was. He said, I see, these, I see these three older, wise men giving counsel to Job, and I dared not give my opinion. But he was, very, he was a very wise young man. So I think we need to also take note of the fact that there can be young people that have a lot of wisdom. Don't shortchange them. Paul said... 
to young Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but being an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Paul poured into young Timothy, and he was confident that Timothy could be um, somebody of benefit to a believer. So, very interesting little dynamic we see there. And then we see that God delivers Job. You know, he, he, he responds now to Job's questioning. And this is that dialogue now between he and God alone. And a lot of times when, when God finally has to speak to us, he has to humble us, doesn't he? He has to humble us. And we may not like that. We may not think that that's even warranted. But we have to understand that it's better to be humbled by God than, um, than exalt ourselves. It says in Matthew twenty three twelve, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles, humbles himself will be exalted. You know, he, God has to approach Job and dialogue with him about, you know, who created all this, Job? You're questioning me, and yet what have you done? It was in Job 38.4 where God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. So he kind of goes back at Job and says, You're trying to give me counsel. You're trying to tell me that I'm doing something wrong. And God says to him, Where were you? I'm the creator of the universe, Job. So he starts to go back at Job with tough questions, right? too great to answer, things that we would not understand. And then Job acknowledges, finally, his inability to understand. See, like Job, our intellect, our understanding is limited. And God's is not. He's always going to know things that we could never understand at all. And then God honors Job. He rebukes his critics And he restores his wealth. And, you know, again, the end of what God intended for Job. The end of what he intends for us. You know, a future and a hope. And uh, an abundant life and eternal life with him. So we speak about, we speak about uh, uh, persevering. Right, we speak about overcoming. Um, we speak about facing the tests in life, and sometimes the, God just gives us tests to uh, to build our character, to refine us. A few things about about that. What can we learn from Job? Thoughts on life's goals, tests of life, to be upright, blameless, fearing God, turning away from evil. And what God thinks about us is more important than what people do, right? Do we have the endurance to get through serious trials and difficulties in our life? Well, we will if we understand that God is not absent when we're going through those things. That nothing can happen to us 
that has not already been filtered through God, that God has allowed for a purpose greater than we could ever understand. And he uses trials to test our hearts, right? And then we need to search for the right perspective, to seek godly counsel. That's biblical. That's a good thing. But be careful as we do that, that we're not trying to justify our own sin. Sometimes counsel, when we seek counsel, we're just trying to get somebody to tell us that what we're doing is okay. And we want to be careful that we don't do that. Prayerfully consider if the counsel is from God or only that person's opinion. And Proverbs speaks a lot about counsel and heeding the words of wise people. You know, in Proverbs twelve fifteen, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. So it's, it is biblical to seek godly counsel. And then we need to get before God, don't we? We need to get before God in prayer. We need to humble ourselves before him. Give him the reverence and honor that's due him. And then have a realistic view of our own sinfulness in order to have that right perspective. And then God's voice is the one that we should be listening to. God's voice. And then understand God's purpose in trials. It's always for our benefit. All things work together for good to those who love God. Understand that he desires for us to bear fruit for his glory. Sometimes that includes pruning, which can be painful. But it says in John 15 about that, about that abiding relationship that we have with Jesus. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it might bear more fruit that's what our desire should be to be to bear more fruit for the lord and sometimes it takes these difficult things that we go through a couple of final thoughts things to look for as we get into the study of this book first <clears throat> Realize that everyone will have times of pain. Everyone will have times of suffering, trials, and difficulties. Some of those things might be brought on by our own carelessness or even our own sin. But there are also times when suffering shows up without warning, without uh, any fault of our own. But either way, we need to remember that God is there. He's there. He has not left us. He's in the midst of everything that we're going through. Secondly, when trials happen, don't blame God. Don't curse or doubt his love for you. Bless his name in spite of what's happening in your life. And don't expect God to explain himself. First of all, he doesn't have to. And many times he, he won't. Because he has a greater plan for us than we could ever understand. Most of the really important lessons in life 
come from how we deal with the most difficult circumstances that we go through. Try to remember that when you're experiencing a trial. Remember his faithfulness in the past that got you through other trials that you experienced in your life. Because whatever you're experiencing now or may experience tomorrow, I'm sure it wouldn't, won't be the first or the last in your life. Remember his faithfulness, how he got you through things in the past. And keep our eyes on eternity. Keep our eyes on eternity. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a more a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Hold fast through your trials. God wants us to be overcomers. When we start to get through this book, I'm going to make reference to many verses, especially in the book of Revelation, that speaks about us as believers being overcomers and what God's desire is for us. And there's a lot of things in this world that we need to overcome. We cannot do it without Jesus Christ in our life. Remember that. Remember that. One verse in in Revelation 21 as we close up. In uh, Revelation 21.7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That's the intimate relationship that he desires for us. As we overcome the obstacles in our life, as we relate to this man that... uh, that lived so many thousands of years ago, we can make application to our own lives today. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.